welcome to this week's episode of Splash of Cinema. I'm John. I'm Pete. And today we're going to cover some more 2020 movies for you. Uh, some stuff to get on your radar, some stuff that's on streaming, and uh, some stuff that's kind of under the surface uh, approaching award season. We see that some of these films can be contenders, even if it's not in the Academy Awards, even the Golden Globes, and we'll get some very specific films for you. So, some stuff that we like and stuff stuff that we don't like, uh, as well as a hidden gem and fiery feces flick to get back into that. Uh, but we want to start it off today with some news. Nomadland. Let's talk about Nomadland. So it was just named Best Picture by the Critics Association. I think that's a good inkling that it's going to win Best Picture. Yeah, Pete, I completely agree with you. Um, I actually had the privilege of going to theaters last week, and I got to see a trailer for Nomadland in, in theaters. My parents hadn't seen the trailer yet, and they love like Oscar movies typically, and they always watch all the Academy Awards stuff, and they were pretty excited about it in, in a pretty low year for movies nomadland seems like a movie that would typically get a lot a lot of oscars buzz anyway and you know it's francis mcdormand it's it's one of those like classic american stories it's about like an american nomad and um yeah it's just been getting raves so i'm very excited and i'm gonna stick to what i said last week i think it wins best picture yeah, I, I mean, I think we can say that at this point. Not that bad films have come out this year. Uh, it's just the amount of films that have come out this year is definitely less than the past. And I mean, I'm sure Nomadland is great, too. Like, I'm not I'm not saying that Nomadland isn't better than past year's winners, but I mean, we haven't seen it either. That's the thing. And I see it as a one hour, 48 minute runtime, which is crazy because, you know, a lot of these character studies, they do tend to go on a while. Like the one hour 48, that's definitely appealing to me. I'm looking forward to watching it. And it's also important to note that it comes out February 19th, 2021 wide release. And the Academy has decided that this year with the pushback date, the cutoff is going to be the end of February. So there's going to be a lot more movies coming. Uh, typically, the hot zone for the Academy is December. But this year, I think it's going to be February, which is nuts. Once again, though, Pete, it's a crazy year. So just how it's rolling this year. and And, you know, I think... A lot of good films are going to come out in February, but like we said, a lot of the films that are going to get Oscar nominations have already come out. But there's, yeah, there's a number of good projects I'm excited for. You mentioned uh, Malcolm and Marie, which is the upcoming Netflix Oscars bid for for a couple categories, and that has Zen- then Zendaya and John David Washington. He, he, are you excited for that one too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw that trailer. That looks. It just seems like it's just those two characters, the whole movie, which is crazy. I mean, Zendaya is such a she's so good at acting like it's nuts going from Disney to like doing this critically acclaimed stuff. Uh, I know it's gotten raves at festivals and just by people who have seen it. And it's a Netflix original directed by Sam Levinson, too, who did Euphoria. Uh, So he clearly knows how to make good stuff. Yeah, I'm super excited. It's black and white. Uh, it's 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 a little different for Netflix, you know. It it seems like a very very serious film, and oftentimes I think Netflix gets into this thing where it has to be appealing to a bunch of people and stuff. But I mean, I I see Malcolm and Marie being a leader going into award season. Eve, I mean, again, we haven't seen it, so this is just speculation. But maybe we'll see a nom for Zendaya or even John David Washington. I mean, the year the year that John David Washington is having is crazy. Uh, he he did action. Now he's going to do this heavy drama. So 
I mean, he's he's becoming his dad in a sense, which is super cool. Uh, just expanding his range, and I can see him doing some crazy stuff in the future for sure. Yeah, I completely agree. He was he was a wonderful in Tenet, and he's definitely one of those like promising young and upcoming actors. And Zendaya, yeah, is starting to take the world by storm. I heard about this movie about a month ago, and that it was almost already a favorite for a nomination for best actress. And I'm I'm sure she will get a nomination for best actress. From what I've heard, she, she did a good job in the movie. From what I've seen from like early critical reviews and stuff, but yeah, it looks it looks really good. Yeah, so that was a big trailer that dropped, as well as Cherry. Uh, there was a teaser for Cherry, the Tom Holland movie, uh, directed by the Russo brothers, who did the Avengers and Game and Infinity War. And I mean, it didn't really show much of the movie, but it had it was there and. Uh, I've heard this is a super heavy hitting movie. It's a war movie. Uh, and I think this can really show Tom Holland's chops as a dramatic actor. Uh, of course, he's Spider-Man. And I, I don't really want him to get typecast in that. Because we'll talk later in the episode about a movie uh, that he was in that we're going to cover. And I thought he did a great job in that. And I think he can do even more. And I think Cherry will be great for that. Again, hasn't come out yet. We don't know anything, but the trailer dropped, and I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to be. It, it's cool to see Tom Holland start to break the mold of his uh, Spider-Man and pretty much exclusively Marvel existence, um, which is great when he's a young actor, and it's what brought him notoriety and fame. But, of course, as any serious actor wants, he wants to be acknowledged for his craft and, and, and show his diversification in and what kind of roles he can do. And I think the movie we're going to talk about later uh, was a start, but it definitely didn't showcase his full range. And maybe Cherry can do that. Maybe Cherry can set him on a path for future awards. Yeah, for sure. So as far as trailers went, those were the big ones that dropped. Uh, But a big thing coming this weekend, January 15th, is the kickoff of the MCU TV shows. WandaVision is coming out on Disney Plus this Friday. I mean, this isn't the Marvel show that I'm most excited for, but, you know, I'm still going to watch it. Uh, If it's there, I'm going to watch it. Something this big budget that's going on to a streaming service, I'm going to watch. Like I said, I'm not too hype about it, just because, you know, Vision isn't, is probably my least favorite Avenger. I just think he's pretty bland. I mean, he is AI, so he's kind of robotic in that sense. But And also from the trailer, I'm not really sure what this show is trying to do or where it's going. But, I mean, that creates some intrigue, too, that I'm excited for. I'm right with you there, Pete. All right, so that was news for this week. Uh, Pretty brief, but let's get into our movies. Again, we're going to be covering some 2020 movies today that we didn't cover last week uh maybe some stuff that we talked about last week that we didn't have the chance to watch but we did in the meantime and we're going to kick it off with our hidden gem of the week it's called charm city kings so the plot reads 14 year old mouse desperately wants to join the midnight click an infamous group of baltimore dirt bike riders who rule the summertime streets and this one is based on a documentary called the 12 o'clock boys I thought it was great. Uh, It was a grand jury nominee at Sundance for Best Drama, and it also won Best Ensemble 
at acting at Sundance in 2020. Uh, it's directed by Angel Manuel Soto. I haven't seen anything else by him, but I thought he did a great job in this. Uh, writ screenplay by Sherman Payne, but it's also important to note that the story is was co-written by Barry Jenkins, writer of Moonlight, If Beale Street Could Talk, Oscar winner, super talented writer, super talented director as well. Uh, it stars Jahi Diallo Winston and Meek Mill makes an appearance. Uh, I'll ask you about it later, John. But I mean, I thought he did a great job in this Meek Mill. Yeah, I completely agree, Pete. Um, actually, that's part of the reason I watched the movie in the first place. I, it, this movie is super hidden gem. I think, what'd you say yesterday, Pete? It only has 420 views on Letterboxd or something? Yeah, it only has 420 reviews on Letterboxd, which... That's crazy. I mean, it it's an HBO Max original, too. So, like, a lot of people have HBO Max, and I, I guess they're just scrolling by it. But, I mean, I, I like this movie a lot. I was super surprised. Yeah, it, this was back in the, the later part of the year when I was when I was trying to to find some really like good low key award winners. And this film popped up because like you said, it did win best, best ensemble at Sundance, which, which is a pretty important award. Like that's not easy to win an award at Sundance at all. It's an interesting subject. It's, it's about like the biker gangs of Baltimore, which there's biker gangs that exist in a, in a lot of cities across the country and not the biker gangs you're thinking of. These are like dirt bike, trick by gangs um and meek mill actually was a perfect choice for this movie because he grew up in those gangs yeah and not only did he just make an appearance but but meek mill had a really important role in the movie he was this kind of mentor figure this supporting actor and he was pretty dynamic in in his first feature film but all across the board it was just full of breakout performances and some really really important themes that are especially relevant today about how different worlds could be like this, this young gang culture is very different from the rest of America that people see. And, and it's important to get this type of film out there. And and it was very good film, very hidden gem. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some things I liked about it. Uh, I thought the footage of the dirt bikes was super cool. There was a su- cool chase scene uh, you can really see that there was a budget for this uh despite people not really seeing this movie there was a budget it's hbo they have so much money uh but yeah they had a lot of continuous shots a lot of circular camera movement around characters and i mean the lead in this jahi diallo winston i haven't seen him in anything else but i mean i could see him really breaking out soon I believe he's only 17, but I think he really shines in this movie, as well as uh, the two other actors who play his friends in this movie. I thought they were all great. Uh, And it's something you don't really see from kids. You know, sometimes it's hit or miss for kid actors and they can make or break a movie. But I thought they really made this movie even added to the story that was there. Uh, Again, crazy script. It's Barry Jenkins. He had his hand in it. Uh, Also produced by Will Smith, which is important. Uh, The trailer actually dropped on Will Smith's personal YouTube page, which I thought was crazy. So funny. But yeah, like the the dialogue was realistic. It takes place now. It's relatable. You understand the characters and their motives. Yeah, this I'm just kind of aghast that this movie didn't get a lot more publicity and 
a lot more love because well i guess it did get a lot of love in, in its limited viewership people liked it and this film has high ratings and high reviews it just didn't get enough publicity that anyone's really talking about it and, and that's a shame because this is a good movie in a year of where not a lot of awesome movies were were released and and this film like you said produced by will smith written partly by barry jenkins like this this has the right people behind it to be a big movie um i'd be curious to see if in a normal year with theaters if this didn't get a bigger viewership because this is the type of film that can kind of snowball but you know meek mill's a popular rapper they have a they have some some really talented members it's a really relevant story and and i would just encourage you all out there to watch it if you don't have HBO Max, just email Splash the Cinema Pod, and and I can uh, let you know a way to watch it. So that's Charm City Kings, and it it's a wonderful movie. Um, I think it's important that a lot more people watch it. Yeah, yep, definitely. Uh, so that was our hidden gem of the week, Charm City Kings. Give it a watch. Uh, the next movie we're going to cover. This is a highly anticipated movie. When the trailer dropped, it's Borat subsequent movie film. Uh, Obviously, Sasha Baron Cohen and the plot reads follow up film to the 2006 comedy centering on the real life adventures of a fictional Kazakh television journalist named Borat. Uh, That really doesn't explain what happens in the movie. That's just IMDb. But there's a lot more that goes on. uh, Directed by Jason Woliner, written by Sasha Baron Cohen, also starring him, as well as starring Maria Bakalova, uh, a young Bulgarian actress that goes along with Sasha Baron Cohen and his adventures in this movie. And it's available on Amazon Prime. It's actually a Prime original. Uh, so thoughts on Borat, subsequent movie film, John? Yeah, um, Borat, you can ask me, is probably my favorite comedy of all time. It's definitely my favorite mockumentary of all time. So this film, I was so excited for. It It was made kind of in a hurry. Sasha Baron Cohen you know, had for years had said, I'm not going to make a sequel to Borat. I think it's great as a standalone film. And then with all the stuff going on in the world and, he, you know, he's not a big fan of Trump. He thought that it was really important to make this movie before the election to kind of highlight what he thought were some of America's problems. Um, this movie was made during the pandemic, which is very interesting. He had to do a lot of filming in places where he probably shouldn't have been filming. and probably should have been home staying staying uh in his house or something but but this film was good and and Sasha Baron Cohen really threw together a pretty good movie in a limited time it it draws the typical laughs it does it features a breakout performance from Maria Bakalova I I was a fan and um you know you're not gonna ever find me hating on one of the Borat type movies I hope this is the last one but if it's not you know I'll watch the next one and probably enjoy that too yeah, I, I mean, I don't really see them making another Borat. Uh, I just, I mean, th- this one isn't as good as the first one, obviously. Like, the first one is a classic, and there's so many scenes in the first one that are just so classic. And even this one, too. Like, this one had its scenes, uh, like, when Borat goes up to the guy printing, and he's, like, faxing. I think that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I watched this with my dad, who also loves Borat, and he thought this was so funny. Uh it does get political though, but like, yeah, like especially now when there we not net currently, but we did have a president in who was 
he was he was he was pretty terrible and like to get this outside view because sasha baron cohen isn't american either he's british i think and but even through this character of borat to like expose trump and his cabinet and all of his staff i think i mean i think that's important and uh i like how it was done in this comedic way uh through borat someone who americans recognize and love to see on the screen yeah and and this film was kind of a lot more hard hitting than the first Borat, which was released in two thousand six. So this is like a fourteen years after sequel, like we said, just kind of like thrown together. And and Sacha Baron Cohen thought it was important to make this film's a lot more hard hitting because it really does show a lot of more you know upfront problems with America. You know, during the pandemic, it shows a lot of people that just don't respect the pandemic and and aren't willing to follow rules. It shows people that, you know, think the pandemic's a conspiracy and think that a lot of our government is involved in malicious activities, which, you know, completely erodes the trust of the American people. Unlike the first film, which was, I just thought, more more lighthearted. It did kind of highlight some anti-Semitism and stuff, but but this film is is almost all, you know, hitting towards one point, which is we live in a in a country that has a lot of kind of crazy people and and that's important to recognize. So this film made me a little more sad than the first film did, but you know, it still had its its share of laughs and and I and I enjoyed it, you know, as as I was expecting to. It didn't disappoint. Yeah, I also want to mention that like you said they filmed this during a pandemic, but I think Borat is something that could have been filmed, you know, because something like this doesn't have a huge crew or anything. You know, it's just Sasha Baron Cohen going around with maybe one or two cameramen and, you know, that's it. And like, sure, you could do that in a pandemic. Like, that's fine. But like you said, like seeing the people who weren't respecting COVID protocols during the pandemic is it's crazy. And like you really question what these people's motivations are because they're not actors. They're people. You know, I was always wondering, you know, people are going to recognize Borat in this movie. Like, what's he going to do? And I just think it's cool what he does. And I think it's funny and it provides some great comedy from this movie. Definitely less comedic than the first one, I will say, though. Like you said, a little more hard hitting. But I mean, it's still Borat. It's still going to be super funny. Yeah, I was going to highlight that, Pete, uh, before you said it. I think it's funny that that Borat, you know, is such a a big character across America. and, And, you know, pretty much everyone recognizes him. So Borat in the movie kind of pawned off a a good way for him to go undercover and it fit well into the plot. So he kind of went undercover as other characters and and that's something Sasha Baron Cohen's been doing for years. So he pulled it off as he always does. But yeah, that was Borat's subsequent movie film. Another good uh, 2020 film, not necessarily an awards type film, but in the comedy genre, it was one of the better ones. And Sasha Baron Cohen got a lot of acclaim for it. So movie okay so the next movie we're going to cover is a documentary it actually won best documentary at sundance in 2020 and it's called feels good man so the plot reads artist matt fury creator of the comic character pepe the frog begins an uphill battle to take back his iconic cartoon image from those who used it for their own purposes Uh, it's directed by arthur jones this movie is something that you told me about john and I had no idea what it was about. I'm not big in meme culture or anything. Or, I mean, I know who Pepe the Frog is, but 
I didn't know all this stuff behind it and all the stuff that's revealed in this movie, just in this in this film just gets crazier and crazier. I mean, I, I had no idea the symbolism of Pepe the Frog and the impact that it would have on the creator who just wanted to make a lighthearted comic strip. I mean, it's it's just this documentary is crazy. Yeah, it's it kind of shows how everything snowballs. Um, this documentary was also very hard hitting. It's actually somewhat like or at subsequent movie film and and that it's it gets political. But it just shows how a, a small symbol like Pepe the Frog, a comic which now almost everyone knows exclusively as a meme, became this symbol for for hatred. And there was this movement to reclaim it. And and there's this whole battle over this little meme, which which you don't really think means anything. But it this documentary shows how just that little symbol can ignite a lot of people to do a lot of really dark things. And its creator spends the documentary basically trying to explain how he didn't intend for any of this to happen. This, this documentary, it's an important documentary to watch, especially today. And I thought it was well done. I like the various voices that they get for this documentary. Even Hillary Clinton makes an appearance in this. And then you have people in the meme culture too make an appearance. So there's a lot of varying voices in this providing their own two cents about Pepe the Frog. And, you know, it, it even goes into how lucrative Pepe the Frog is. And some of the memorabilia around Pepe the Frog is so lucrative. And I just think that's insane because, like I said, I'm not a meme person, but just seeing this whole subculture in, in its realness too. Like this, nothing is fabricated from this. This is a documentary. This is real. It's crazy. And watching it, I was just going in my head and I was like, whoa, like Pepe the Frog means this much to some people. It's kind of crazy. What, what I really enjoyed too about this documentary, not only did they get like a lot of good voices, but they, they had a lot of people that were very good at explaining what it meant, what Pepe the Frog means uh, other than a meme and kind of what memes mean and what they show as part of the human experience. Um, they had experts in this from Princeton and like multiple psychological experts. But then on top of that, they also went into the meme culture and, and interviewed a lot of these perpetrators of the meme and, and these people that spent all their time on these sites like 4chan, just literally their life is memes and it, it shows you kind of both sides of, of how this thing started and, and it, it takes you back and analyzes what it means. And, and I really like that because I had no idea Pepe the Frog was, was this big. Yeah. Also, uh, on top of the live interviews and such, uh, it has some cool animation, I will say. Uh, something that I wasn't expecting going into it. I thought it was just going to be a cut and dry interview you know just a standard documentary but they work some cool animation into it which you don't really see in documentaries which i thought was super cool and i think it added to it and kind of showed what pepe the frog was like his real image and that you know it's not just a frog like this an artist created pepe the frog like sure sure it's his most iconic character but it he never meant it to do this and and to be interpreted this way and I feel bad for the guy at the end of it. I feel bad for Matt Fury because he's worked so hard on his artwork. And I'm sure Boys Club, the comic strip that Pepe was in, is great. And, you know, it's kind of just been ruined, which sucks. But I'm here for you, Matt Fury. Me too. So that was our movie, Feels Good Man, which is another pretty hidden movie. 
but if you're into documentaries, if, if you want to learn a little bit more about the world, that's a great movie to watch. Which brings us to our next movie, which is not necessarily hidden, a, a Netflix project, uh, The Devil All the Time. And the plot reads, sinister characters converge around a young man devoted to protecting those he loves in a post-war backwoods town teeming with corruption and brutality. And this was written and directed by Antonio Campos, who's kind of a newcomer to the big budget scene, um, and stars Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, Riley Keough, Jason Clark, Sebastian Stan, Haley Bennett, Harry Melling, Eliza Scanlon, and Robert Pattinson. Um, and as I said, available on Netflix. You know, a, a really good cast, but Pete and I have some different opinions on this movie. I thought it was pretty good, um, but I could definitely see where this film missed the mark. And it, it, you know, it had the potential to be so much better, which is a shame. Um, Pete, devil all the time. I have so many thoughts about this. This is a fresh viewing. I watched it yesterday, actually. I just think th- the movie moves way too fast for the plot. Uh some things are just scanned over. And I feel like that that's kind of Netflix being like, hey, work it into this time frame. Sure, The Irishman was three hours and 30 minutes, but it's Martin Scorsese. Like, this is Antonio Campos. He's a new director. Uh, and I mean, this was based off a book, so he does have to stay loyal in that respect. But I just thought so many things were poorly done from this movie, just from an, an objective standpoint, too. Like, just from a filmmaker standpoint. Uh, I thought the score at times was really inconsistent. Uh, it was kind of standard too. It was just some. It was just like a piano, just going on and on, and it didn't really match what what was going on from the screen and taking place in West Virginia and uh, the Midwest with all these shitty people. I don't think the score really matched that. I think they could have worked some music from the area into the score. Uh, as well as the camera work, I at times it was shaky, at times it was fluid, and it, it I mean, it didn't really go with like the camera work wasn't respective of what was on the screen, and even the cast too. Like something with this big of a cast should everyone should perform, but I thought a lot of actors really missed their mark, specifically Sebastian Stan. I just I just didn't think this was a great role for him. I thought Tom Holland did do well though. Uh, granted the scripts and the movie itself weren't crazy good. Like I, I I'm, I'm really conflicted over this movie still. I have a lot of thoughts, but it's definitely something I need to watch again. And, you know, maybe I will appreciate it more upon my next viewing, but as of now, I just, I just didn't like it at all really. And this is something that was really hyped up by Netflix. It was always on the Netflix trending list has a crazy cast uh, based off a book that was successful, and I just thought it missed. And I'm going to come on a little bit to offer some different perspectives on the movie and kind of why I did like the movie. While, while I'm not saying that I think it deserves any type of Oscars, I do think that this movie did have some important things, in it, and I kind of liked how it spiraled darkly. Um, I watched this movie the day it came out. I didn't read the book or anything, but as I've said before, I'm a huge Robert Pattinson fan and and he had a pretty big role in this film. So I was like, of course I have to watch it. Um, I like Tom Holland as Spider-Man. And so those were the two performances I really looked to. And those performances were part of carrying that movie. Tom Holland is, is the character it centers on. He's the, he's the character that kind of comes of age. And then this was his role. This was his 
opportunity to kind of showcase his diversification as an actor. You know, he he takes on a little bit of a southern accent. He he has some some like kind of bad boy action scenes. He's he you know he has a dynamism to him that we haven't seen before, and and I really like that in Tom Holland. I think he has a lot of room to grow. And then Robert Pattinson, you know, it wasn't his best performance, but I, I enjoyed that he kind of took on the role of the Southern Gothic preacher and took on this this kind of funky Southern accent. But but this film was, I viewed it as more than just, you know, a shitty sum of its parts. I viewed it as a torching of that Southern religious culture and, and the hypocrisy behind it. Hypocrisies everywhere in this film, and, and that was one of the goals of the director to show that. This film highlights a lot of flaws that that existed in the South, kind of this corruptive violence masked by this like hospitality, and it just kind of spirals. And it's a dark film. It, it's it's got few lighthearted moments, but but I think that's okay, and and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I totally respect where you come from. Again, films are subjective. We all, each have our opinions, and you know, this is one of the first films that john and i have really disagreed on on the pod uh and you know that's okay that's fine and we respect each other's opinions and we recognize that yeah i i mean the plot was cyclical also and it was it was quite predictable i thought again campos can't really do anything with that that's the book but then that leads to my question of you know what's the aim of this movie like i mean like you did say it did have it did expose uh the hypocrisy of people in power in the South, but you know, that was the 1950s. Like it's not now. And it, the South is very different now. Oh yeah, of course. I think it was trying to show the hypocrisy of the South in the 1950s. Maybe we have slightly different views on what it was trying to show, but I'll completely agree with you. I'm not a huge fan of Antonio Campos. I might've given this film a little more love than it deserved, but I do just want to say like in general, it got, mostly positive reviews maybe that was people that don't really understand cinema i don't think a lot of uh big cinema heads were big fans of this movie i couldn't hate on a film with robert pattinson and and while i do admit it has a lot of flaws as a movie i thought in general it was better than than the flaws and and it kind of rose above that well like i said though not an awards film at all yeah yeah i mean if this gets an any nomination for that matter at the Academy Awards. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be pretty upset. I think that's just, you know, them giving in to the whole big budget thing because this movie did have a big budget. Again, it's a Netflix original. They put money into it. Uh, it's a crazy cast. You know, you need money to pay those people. But yeah, I, I, I'd just be super disappointed if this gets any love during award season. As I'm saying all these negatives and things I hated about the movie, I wanted to bring up two performances that I thought really stood out from the movie. Uh, Bill Skarsgård first. I mean, he w- he wasn't on the screen much, but when he was, he was so captivating. And it's good to see him be someone other than Pennywise because, you know, obviously he provides a great performance in Pennywise, but even in this, he's really showcasing that he is a great actor and he, he needs to do more stuff. Uh, again, coming from like a crazy acting family, his brothers are actors, his dad's actors, but I mean, he's so good in this movie and I thought he really shone through uh, even more so than Holland and Pattinson for that matter, uh, as well as Harry Melling. Uh, you might know him as Dudley from Harry Potter, but he was in this movie as well. I thought he provided a great performance. Uh, 
up to par with Skarsgård. I think them two are definitely the the best actors in this movie. Uh, but like you said, Holland and Pattinson do have their moments. Uh, but you know, some actors do miss in this movie, and I think that's just miscasting and kind of just stud casting and trying to put a lot of people into one movie. And you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. And in this case, I really think it didn't. Yeah, and and Harry Melling's on the rise. I just wanted to throw that in there. He's also in the Queen's Gambit, that really popular Netflix series. If you're interested, I think Netflix is going to use him a lot more in the future. So that was uh, Netflix's The Devil All the Time, which is a controversial film this year, um, but but features a lot of good actors that you might like, and um, it might be worth a watch. Let us know what you think. Which brings us to another Netflix project, one that um, is adapted from August Wilson's Pulitzer Prize. Well, I don't think this play won the Pulitzer Prize, but August Wilson's a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. This film is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, set in 1927 Chicago. It is a recording session, and tensions rise between Ma Rainey, her ambitious horn player, and the white management determined to control the uncontrollable Mother of the Blues, directed by George C. Wolfe, uh, written by Ruben Santiago Hudson, and, you know, August Wilson, who wrote the play. Stars Viola Davis, Chadwick Boseman, Coleman Domingo. These are three tenured actors they've been around for a while and none of them disappoint this was a film that was you know focused on the actors focused on the acting performances I was very hyped for it because Chadwick Boseman as we all know tragically died this year but he's just a phenomenal actor and he doesn't disappoint in this movie and then of course Viola Davis also kind of carries the film a little bit with her performance just a good movie and and it's really hard to adapt a movie from a play, but but I thought uh, this was one of the projects that Netflix did a good job getting behind, and, and they put out a, a decent film that should get some love uh, in the acting categories come Academy Awards season. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think Viola Davis gets a nomination for Best Actress, uh, as well as Chadwick Boseman. I mean, some of his monologues in this movie are so powerful and so crazy. You know, it's something that, like you, like we were talking about earlier with Tom Holland, you know, Chadwick Boseman, he's kind of known as this uh, MCU guy. He's Black Panther, but I think he really breaks out and puts forth a crazy performance in this role. It, whether it's for this or the Defy Bloods in a supporting uh, nomination, I definitely think he's going to get a nomination. Uh, again, just a tragic loss and the Academy has to do this. Uh just a great actor and cultural figure as well. I mean, Black Panther is such a cultural icon in that sense. And I think he provides superb acting in this movie just from an acting standpoint as well. Like it, he's so spot on with everything and his choices are so deliberate. You know, when you pair that up with August Wilson's words, one of the best playwrights of the 20th century, you're going to get something great. And Although it is hard to adapt plays to films, I thought this did well. This did it well, especially uh, for the fact that this movie does take place in like a three-hour time span, uh, which is hard to do with some films to make it interesting. But like you said, the acting, even the music in it is... I, I like it. You know, I, I love blues, and it's great to see it being shown in film in films. And like you said, Viola Davis, she has done August Wilson before, uh, she worked with Denzel Washington on the Broadway revival of Fences and then the subsequent film. Uh, and she won 
best actress at the Oscars for it. So, you know, we'll probably see another nomination for Viola Davis in this. And also Coleman Domingo, I thought did a great job in this. Uh, That's an actor who, you know, you see his face and you recognize him, but you don't really know his name because, but he does so much and it's great to see him in a big role in this because there isn't a small character in this movie. Uh, Every character plays an integral part to the plot and what's going on. And I think it's also an important movie to come out now, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, There's definitely some discrimination shown in this movie. Uh, It takes place in 1927. So that's going to be there. And I thought they handled it really well. And I think this movie is super important, uh, even to the music industry, to show where we've come from and uh, just to respect our roots. You know, Ma Rainey is the queen of the blues, and it's great that there's a movie made for her. Yeah, and all these characters, which this was an acting-heavy, script-heavy type movie, but all these characters are, are kind of really hopeful and ambitious. They're all, you know, serious musicians and and have big, big dreams. And, and Chadwick Boseman exemplifies that in his role. And, and you know, they, they feel hopeless at times because they do live in a world where the odds are stacked against them, and that breeds some conflict. But but this film was definitely carried by those those big actors and actresses, very performance heavy. And then Chadwick Boseman, he's the talk of the town on this film. Um, that's why a lot of people are watching it. You know, of course, all respect to Viola Davis. She's great. She deserves a nomination. But but Chadwick Boseman is is so dynamic and kind of gives one of the best performances of his lifetime. And, and what's his last performance um, in a movie? And and that was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I which I enjoyed. I, I thought it wasn't it wasn't the best, but but it's a good movie, and they did well with what they had. That's gonna bring us to our fiery thesis flick of the week, uh, the last film we're gonna cover today. And this is a movie that it's like The Room uh, by Tommy Wiseau. You don't know if they're serious in making it because it is so bad and so poorly done. Uh, but unlike The Room, this movie actually had some actors in it that have had a past and have had success in the past, and it's called Money Plane. So the plot for Money Plane is a professional thief with $40 million in debt and his family's life on the line must commit one final heist, rob a futuristic airborne casino filled with the world's most dangerous criminals. So it's directed by Andrew Lawrence, written by Andrew Lawrence as well. And it stars Adam Copeland, who is uh, a former WWE wrestler known as Edge. It also has Kelsey Grammer, Thomas Jane, and Denise Richards, uh, Charlie Sheen's ex-wife. And it's available on Hulu, unfortunately. Before we cover Money Plane, we'd like to give you two clips from the movie from Kelsey Grammer's character, Darius Emmanuel Grouch III aka The Rumble, just to give you a sense of how bad this movie is, and to hopefully give you a good laugh in the process. It's called a money plane. Some of the baddest motherfuckers on the planet are on that plane, all craving action. Whatever you want to wager on, the money plane has you covered. You want to bet on a dude fucking an alligator? Money plane. I don't give a fuck who's on that plane. I'm the baddest motherfucker on the planet. I am Darius Grouch the third, the rumble, and I am taking down the money plane. Now bring me my money. 
I mean, this movie is so bad. Uh, <laughs> from the script to the shooting to the scenery, it's you can tell it was low budget, but I mean, it's also just so bad. There's no redeemable qualities about this movie. Yeah, and and I've heard Pete talking about how bad this movie is for weeks since he saw it. Um, he he won't stop talking about it, and and I was like, wait, do you want me to watch this movie? He's like, he's like, yeah, I think it'd be important for us to talk about or something like that. Um, and and I I went and I watched it yesterday on Hulu. Um, it didn't deserve a watch. It definitely doesn't deserve to be talked about on this podcast. But you know, here we are. We're gonna torch it anyway. It deserves to be torched. Um, and, and there was just, yeah, it, it felt completely fake. First of all, the, the plot line is just not realistic at all, which would have been interesting if they made it kind of like a sci-fi movie, but it was kind of portrayed as like a, this could happen type heist movie. And, um, it spits on the genre of heist movies. It spits in the face of it. I think Adam Copeland, who, as you said, is a former WWE wrestler, I'm very much hoping that his WWE performances were more realistic and he was a better actor in them. Um, because if he acted in WWE the way he acts in this movie, I could see his career being very short. But this film this film has some some actors and actresses that, that have a, a history in the industry. And, and I'm just really surprised that they would be willing to get behind a project like this, which didn't make any money really. It was, you know, not a success critically at all. You could kind of tell five minutes in how this movie was going to go. Just completely, completely fake. We can maybe pick apart a few scenes in particular, but but Money Plane was just a train wreck. Um, and I would encourage you not to see it. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you're looking to watch good movies, don't watch this. But if you're looking for a movie that you know is bad and it's going to give you a good laugh for how bad it is, that's money playing. Uh, but yeah, like you said, Kelsey Grammer doing this movie, that is, it was so weird. Uh, you know, I think Andrew Lawrence just said to him, hey, I'll give you unlimited scotch and cigars while you're on set if you do this movie and like $2,000. Uh, and I, I mean, I think that convinced him. He plays this mob boss in the movie that his first line is just his name. Uh, he just goes, Darius Emmanuel Grouch the Third, like that's his name. Like that—that's ridiculous. It just makes no sense. Uh, like you said, super unrealistic. Like a cas- uh, untraceable casino in the sky. Like what? Like who thinks of this? Uh, the opening montage as well uh, with introducing the actors and stuff. It could have been made on iMovie. Uh, it was so bad. Oh, easily, yeah. Maybe it wasn't in an iMovie. Yeah, who knows, honestly. Uh, but, I mean, the act, the supporting actors in this movie are so bad. Like, uh, I am i don't even know where they get these people, but the one character, uh, the one guy with the mustache, he's just so slimy, and he's just not a good actor at all, uh, like a lot of the other actors in this movie. Yeah, it felt really forced. Like, they they came up with this super unrealistic plot and then tried to force the actors to go along with it and, and play their respective roles. And then none of them wanted to, and it was pretty clear. Um, I'm just disappointed. And like another actor in this movie was Thomas Jane, who, who, you know, I, I'm, I didn't really know before this, but looking at his 
letterbox credits he's he was in scott pilgrim versus the world he was in magnolia he was in boogie nights he was in thin red line which is one of my favorite movies and he didn't have big roles in any of these movies, very small roles but just an actor that's been on the caliber of sets like those films and then does a film like this it's just really disappointing i mean have some self-respect but yeah i could have made money playing easily on iMovie just that that first kind of sequence in which uh, Adam Copeland's character breaks the fourth wall and talks to the audience about, you know, why why he's the master of heists and like what his kind of steps are for doing a heist, which are just completely wrong. Like, no, you don't want to do a heist like the way he does. I I can't even remember what they are, but I just remember thinking at the time, these like rules that you have for yourself on these missions don't really make much sense. And I could see this film as as a decent parody of a heist movie, but it's clear that they were actually intending it to be a serious movie, and that and that's what's disappointing. Yeah, I mean, even the protagonist in this, Adam Copeland, spends the majority of the movie being a pilot of a plane. Like that that just shows that like the lack of effort that was put into this story. Uh just having your protagonist be static for like half of the movie it's it's just ridiculous and i mean also the runtime of this is like one hour and 20 minutes too so i mean once i saw that i knew it was going to be terrible uh i actually heard about this from another podcast that did the same thing that we're doing and just flamed it yeah money plane is just not it uh if if you're drunk one night and want something funny to watch watch money plane like it's so laughable if you if you know about cinema and you know how to make movies uh just to watch this it's such a great laugh uh but that's really the only reason why you why you can watch it really why you should watch it yeah one hour 20 minutes too long for sure um should have been zero minutes but but yeah i'm really surprised hulu took this on this is the type of film that i could see never ever being on a streaming service ever again once it leaves hulu if it leaves hulu um but if you do want to take a look at it that's where you can find it i guess money plane that's it's just even the title like what kind of gives you almost no indication of what's gonna go on um i guess considering the story the title's decently accurate um but there's a lot of really contrived and forced situations as well in this movie that, that, that were shocking. I was like, what? Why are they trying to do that? Like, this this idea of this, like, airborne casino that's in international territory, so, like, there's no taxes or anything, um, and all these rich people, like, killing each other and betting on it, it doesn't seem like something I'd want to go to if I was a rich person or, like, some underground criminal they managed to somehow get like all the worst people in the world on this plane together which you know i'm sure in real life all those types of people would be so sketched out with like getting together with the other worst people in the world it's kind of like in this film it assumes that they all know each other and like respect each other like organ traders and stuff and you know want to hang out together um i wouldn't want to hang out with any of those people i thought they tried to portray themselves as badasses and stuff, but I think in real life, those people are probably a lot more badass. In the film, they kind of all seem like wimps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, 
and I mean, it is a heist movie, and the action scenes in it are so bad, so unrealistic, and I mean, it's really just an abomination to the whole genre of heist movies. I mean, Ocean's Eleven is one of my favorite movies of all time, and this just ruins heist movies, and I love heist movies. I mean, but again, this film gets no respect from anyone. So that really shouldn't change your opinion on the genre of heist movies, but it's just so bad. Uh, there's not much more I can say besides it's really just an abomination to filmmaking uh, at any level. If you're looking for a real parody of heist movies, you should check out uh, Rick and Morty season four. There's an episode that actually torches the genre um, and and was successful in in making me lose some respect for heist movies. Maybe we can have a disagreement on that someday. I am a fan of the Oceans movies. I think I've seen a couple of them. But this movie wasn't it. It, it, it Yeah. And, and, and in no way it was it as, as a movie, as a as a heist movie. At none of the acting performances stood out in any way. Um, poorly written, terrible like special effects and action sequences. All around, all around bad. Um, and I was on the line between giving this film a half star and one star, and now just talking about it and thinking about it again. Um, yeah, that debate's over. It's a half star. I, I can't believe I ever considered giving it anything more than that. But yeah, just just a bad movie. I think I'm done talking about it. But uh, maybe you have a little more to say. <laughs> no, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, there's only so much you could talk about, Money Plane. Uh, but yeah, half star for me too. Uh, I think the worst movie we've covered for the fiery feces flick, uh, outdoing Hubie Halloween and. Oh yeah. It easily outdoes Hubie Halloween. I think. Yeah. And outdoing a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan, the third, which was probably worse than Hubie Halloween, but don't watch money plane, uh, unless you're looking for a good laugh. Uh, so that was our fiery feces flick of the week. And we're going to wrap it up here decent length episode today uh we wanted to get some more 2020 films on your radar going into award season uh as well as some news and some trailer information that came uh since our last episode so yeah thanks for listening this week on splash of cinema i'm pete i'm john thank you for listening have a good one